Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I still think about those six words every time I go to work, every time I start a business. I ask, I ask myself, what does the world need and how can we fill that need? He holds over two dozen cybersecurity patents. He sold his last company for over $300 million. He's affectionately known as the fraud father. But you have to hear how six simple words defined Ori Eisen's career. That story right now, I'm Steve Parker Jr. This is Parker on Tap. Ori, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Steve. It's quite an honor. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's great to talk to you again. And, um, and I look forward to learning from you today because when I've spoken to you in the past, I've, I've learned quite a significant amount. Um, but so let's start with this, uh, because inquiring minds want to know. Um, on Twitter, you call yourself the fraud father. Is that your superhero alter ego? <laughs> I actually got this moniker from a blogger. So somebody who I did a podcast with uh, about five or six years ago. And at the end uh, of hearing my life story and what I do and my work with Frank, he says, so you're like the fraud father, aren't you? I'm like, well, I guess so. And it just stuck from there. So uh, I will say I am the fraud father prevention wise. I'm not creating fraud. That's a, that's a big mistake. That would be the opposite but, of your purpose yeah, in life. <laughs> it, it just stuck. And uh, sometimes uh, people jokingly, when they see me at trade shows, like I said, so you're the fraud father. And I said, yes, yes, that's, that's me. That's great. Well, it's always good when someone else gives you a, a great nickname. You know, it's, it's, not, a, it's not very kosher to uh, give yourself one, right? <laughs> well, let me, let me quickly run down some of your professional background. You know, currently you're the founder and CEO of TrueSona, a passwordless identity authentication platform. Prior to this, you were the founder and CEO of 41st Parameter, a fraud protection company that was acquired by Experian for over $300 million. Prior to that, you were the global director of Worldwide Fraud for American Express, and I'll end with, you know, prior to Amex, you were also the director of fraud for VeriSign. And, and if that's not enough, in addition to that, you hold over two dozen cybersecurity patents. So would it be safe to assume that you're a well-vetted person and expertise on fraud? One would say I'm familiar with the art. <laughs> the art. That's perfect. Um, well, you know, tell me, you know, we all, you know, particularly those of us that have chosen a path of starting and, and running a business, like you and I have, we all have this moment that strikes us and we say, you know, I, I just have to go do that. Like you can't live with yourself if you don't attempt it. So when did that happen for you? And you decided I'm going to dedicate my life to fighting online crime. So where were you? Uh, when did it happen? And, and what attracted you to that, to that moment? It was in 2003. Uh, it was a Monday right after Thanksgiving. I remember coming to work and there was a large fraud attack on our industry that weekend because the bad guys were using the fact all of us were eating turkey and enjoying family time, which was pretty clever on their part. And um, I saw the money leave, not just uh, our place, many other places. 
And I basically ask a simple question that Monday that I've never asked before, which is, where does this money go? Like, who's using it and for what purpose? Because up until that moment, I was doing my job. I was managing risk. I was making sure to write, you know, new fraud rules and managing to a budget. I mean, I was doing what every risk manager does. But I never asked that question of what happens to this money. And once you start following it, Steve, and you see that it goes to fund nefarious activities like uh, weapons buying, um, terrorism, narcotics, all the way to child exploitation online, which is another thing we should talk about and where I dedicate my life to prevent that, I decided that this is no longer work for me or a job or a career. This is a mission because... Every time we let the money go through, not, and it's not just bad for the customer, for the bank, and for whoever is losing it. It's actually worse because it's funding really, really bad things. So that was my seminal moment where I decided, you know what? I need to go do this and do everything I can, whether it's starting companies or working with you know, luminaries in our field to block these things from happening so we don't let our money go fund things that are way, way worse. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Like, you know, I, I don't think I've ever even thought like, where does the money go? I've, you know, whenever I've had, you know, I've had a few instances of someone getting my credit card number and, you know, taking some money. And of course, you know, I'm protected by Amex or, or Visa or whomever I'm using. Um, but to think about where the money goes and if that is, you know, for things such as child exploitation or weapons or narcotics or, you know, terrorism, terrorism. or something. I mean, like, I mean, of course. So when you when you traced, were you able to track those those dollars to very specific instances of, of those events? Yeah. So after that, every time I would work on a fraud case, not only would I report it, you know, to authorities or work with three-letter agencies to uh, give them all the ammunition I can so they can go track these perps. At the end of the day, I would ask, well, did you catch them or what happened or where was it used? And you see that it usually goes to groups who are well-organized, who are operating complete uh, networks of organized crime. There's no other way to say it. And within the branches of those organizations, you have people who trade with people, with human trafficking, and people who trade with cards, and people who smuggle weapons, and people who do drug deals. So the money that they still help them either recruit people, buy tools, buy hosting environments, right? Because if you want to send a million emails a day with spam, you still need to have servers and you know DNS names and all those things. So the money they still actually goes to fund their operations. So, so Ori, you know, the, the dollars, you know, that, that fund all these nefarious activities, I mean, it, obviously it adds up to a significant amount. Do you know what the total dollars are of fraud that, that even occurs each year in the United States? It is hard to say exactly because some of it is simply underreported or undetected. But from what we know and is reported, I'll give you some numbers because the, the total amount is staggering. Uh, yesterday, I read an article that in California alone, as a result of COVID, people were filing for unemployment insurance. They are already aware of $31 billion of fraudulent claims. That's one state in the last 12 months. If you look at medical insurance, just you know, Medicaid, Medicare, we know that 10% of that is lost to people who are pretending to be doctors and filing claims and all kinds of medical fraud 
And that is in the billions of dollars a year. And that's just like within government. If you then take e-commerce, we're talking about tens of billions of years in fraud of stolen goods, things that are uh, kind of fenced over. And then you get all kinds of bank fraud, wire, account opening. It is staggering. I believe the worldwide number is standing at $6 trillion at this point because it is so... Uh, it's like a well-oiled machine, Steve, that today you can do malware attacks and spam attacks and all these things with a click of a button. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you need to have a specialized team to do it for you. But today you literally have packages of software, just like you buy Excel and Word like to run your office. There's packages of software to run you know, cyber campaign attacks. So I think it's only going to get worse unless we come in and block it exactly where it hurts wow. them. And that's $6 trillion a year. A year, yes. Wow, and it's unimaginable almost. I mean, well, our, you know, that that's a good dovetail into the next question or one of the questions I wanted to ask you, which, which was, you know, I read a quote from you that goes back to 2017. And in that you stated the internet's an unsafe powder keg waiting to explode. I mean, has that moment happened? Or are we still on alert? If you ask me, that moment already has happened. And I think we as a society are not reacting to it as we should. Let me just rattle off two or three of these explosions that already have happened. But instead of uh, instead of writing our representatives, we went to Starbucks that day. You know, and this is not a plug for Starbucks; it's just a figure of speech. I'm with you. So I'll give you some examples. A few years ago, the OMB, which is the of, the one of the offices of our government, was breached. And the details of every soldier, every government employee, and our spies were leaked. Now, let me just stop there. How is that okay? How are we not saying, whoa, 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 what's going on here? As the country that developed computing and developed encryption, how are we letting this happen? And don't say it's a budget problem. Because we spent so much money on developing, you know, uh, covert uh, intelligence and developing spies and informants. And you want to tell me that with one database that didn't have even second factor on top of it, now all this data is with our adversaries? I mean, that is bad. Well, and it's there. not like you can just take that database back. Once it's in one hand, it's in many, right, at That's that point. Right. Multiple copies of it. Right. So, so that's just one of those explosions, right? Look, we are sitting on something that is never meant to be as secure, yet we put all of our lives on it. I can give you a few examples that everybody should know about, but we are not reacting to it as if uh, we just got our future handed to us, because this is exactly what happens. If you take the solar winds event that just happened in the last few weeks, through that back door, the attacker now has access to 18,000 companies, including many of our government agencies, reading their emails, routing their traffic. How is that not causing us to say, whoa, 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 stop? Just like we invest in education and in medical and in the army, you know, we have to invest in securing this stuff. Otherwise, what's the point of protecting it to begin with? So we had already a few explosions. I'll give you the Equifax breach as another one. Your data, Steve, my data, probably everybody who listens to this show right now, their social security number, address, age, deal, all these things have been breached. So 
don't be surprised if you see so much fraud happening because the tools to open bank accounts and credit cards and, and buy stuff online, we've given the bad guys the tools. Now, I know there's no one place to go fix it because we are a society and there's a lot of people, but if we want to keep the internet as a, a viable tool, we have to wake up and do something different. Otherwise, again, it's a powder keg. We're sitting on top of it and we're just waiting for the next thing to happen to help us realize that it was not as secure as we thought it is. You know, when these, when these events happen, you know, with the government office or, you know, Equifax, SolarWinds, I mean, I mean I've talked with, you know, people about Equifax a few times just because that one, you know, it's more personally relatable. Although the first example you gave concerns me more than my personal data being out. The fact that everyone, that someone knows who all of our soldiers are, who our spies are, who our government workers are and, and all their information. I mean, that's, that's, that's more concerning um, than even if someone had my personal social security and credit card number. Exactly. Um, but why, I mean, is it, is it the government that's not making this a serious enough topic? Is it, is it just consumers being obtuse and glancing over the news and then watching the Kardashians after and not really caring anymore? I mean, like, like where does it start and where does it end? Yeah, that's a great question. I think like with every other crisis society deals with, like think about 9-11 as a poster child, horrible event. I'm sure years before there were many requests for budgets to secure airport and but people says, eh, what's the cost of doing nothing, right? Let me go another year without it. But if you've ever seen the charts, the budget for the TSA did not exist a year before 9-11. And yet it was $6 billion its first year and only growing. So think about it. Because we had a bad, bad event, now we all of a sudden found money to go fix it, but it was after the event. I don't wanna say that we need an E-9-11 Wait, I'm taking that back. We do need an E911 and I don't want it to happen, but only if something catastrophic like that would happen and it would be proven that with better cyber protection, we could have prevented it. I think we will have that seminal moment for our society to understand, you know what, this is just bad. We, can't, we have to do something. So I think that is still missing because we behave, we live our lives as if none of that has ever happened, even though I think it did already. And after that, we need to, as citizens, realize that if we ask you to do something, or if we ask you to just update your phone operating system to the latest thing, that it's not a maybe I want to do it or later, or it doesn't matter, that you are part of a network called the internet, right? So I think we still need some leadership from the top to give it the right focus and budget and um, kind of a mission-driven project to go and change how we operate. And after that, we will need the help of everybody who using the internet to not be the weakest link. Well, you know, it's, it's, um, it's interesting and it's unfortunate that things like that have to happen to, to wake us up, right? And, and it's, it's the same in personal lives. People generally don't do something until it's painful enough to do it, right? And, yep. you know, I, I guess the, the most recent thing I can think of that would even be relatable that was finally the wake-up call for really everyone in the world was, you know, you have... COVID-19 and, and this event happens and a pandemic happens where we all realize that we weren't prepared for anything. And of course, now we're sitting here well over a year later and it's still happening and, and we're really no better off, you know, with it. So it's, it's unfortunate um, 
that, that those events have to happen for us to wake up. Well, let's, I want to come back to fraud um, here in a moment. Um, just, just before that, I want to talk a little bit about some of your background. For you, you arrived to the U.S. from Israel at the age 21. You had a thousand bucks in your pocket. What the hell were you thinking? <laughs> what was your purpose? You showed up and it's like, okay, where do I go? Yeah, um, the story goes a little bit farther. When I was six years old, my parents uh, took me on a trip to the United States. I will not lie, I fell in love. And I told my parents when we got back home that this is where I want to live. And I don't know if you have children, if you're listening to this show, but if your six-year-old will tell you, mommy, daddy, I want to live in Japan. And uh, you'll say, yeah, yeah, sure, you, you will do that. But I really meant it. I somehow felt that this is where I need to be. So I started teaching myself English even before it was taught in school by reading Mad Magazine and National Geographic and all kinds of things I could put my hands on. And when I was 21, I finished my three years of obligatory service in the army. In Israel, you have to. And then I landed in New York, as you said, with $1,000 on November 11th, 1991. Who's counting, right? Um, I had this dream to come here and see if I can do everything I ever wanted to do. But I promised myself if I can't be here legally, I shouldn't be here. So the first six months I was on a tourist visa and I had to make a big decision. Am I staying or am I leaving? And after six months, I said, are you kidding me? I don't care that I don't have my family. I don't care that this is a new culture. I don't care that it's a new you know, language and friends and I'm away from everything I knew, but I just felt this is it for me. So I uh, applied for a student visa and I went to school in, uh, in New Jersey. Uh, I graduated after four years by working four different jobs while going to school. And I can tell you uh, the year I became a citizen, it took me 16 years. That's how long the process took. But the year I became a citizen was one of the best moments of my life. And I can't imagine a better place to be and be active and do my volunteering and ball to all, as you said earlier, from the United States, because I think we are the light of the world and we should keep doing that forever and ever. And do you, that's wonderful. And, and do you um, ever go back to Israel or do you go back often? I used to go once a year because I was just alone here and I had to go see my family. Uh, over the years, I started going every two years. And after I had my uh, kids and family, either my family comes to visit me or I go there. So on average, I go there every other year. And especially if I'm invited to speak or do something like that. But I travel so much, especially uh, with Frank all over the world that I just uh, don't have time these days. But I do go back. Just the food alone is uh, worth going for. Yeah, one of my one of my best friends is from Israel. Um, his name is Oded, and and he he lives in San Francisco. But you know, when he when I was at when I was at in college, he showed up, and he was a freshman, but he was much older than me. And I was trying to figure out, you know, just curious, like, why are you coming to college now? You're like three years older than me, and and I'm a junior, you know, and. Um, and, and he, that's when I learned about in Israel, you know, you have to, everyone like women and men are required to, um, go into the military service for, for three years. And it was, um, it was quite a learning moment moment for me. And I've learned a lot, you know, uh, from him over the years as a, as a foreign friend, if you will. Um, and when he graduated Stanford, you know, he's gone on and, and started a lot of companies and had great success too, but, um, good story in of itself. Um, well, you know, you had mentioned you put yourself through college. And, and working four jobs, nonetheless, 
you know, that either gives a person motivation or it completely breaks them. <laughs> you know, my dad put himself through college and it came close to breaking, I think, at one point. Um, but it, clearly it did the former for you. Tell me about let that motivation and out of curiosity, what were one or two of those jobs? Um, so I will start by saying it did break me uh, two years into sleeping four hours a night. Um, I still remember it like it's now where my landlord where, was hitting me on the face because I fainted on the driveway and I just didn't like I came home at oh, 10 wow. p.m. from college I opened the door and the next thing I remember is him slapping me waking me up I just fainted and of course my aunt and uncle says you see we told you it will happen to you you don't take care of yourself and you work yourself too hard but you know I was young <laughs> and ambitious and I, I had no choice right I didn't have anybody to pay my bills so if I didn't work I, I couldn't pay my bills so it is what it is so I will say it was not an easy um, journey but I'm extremely happy about it because it's a happy struggle as I call it I mean it was my life my choice my decision so it wasn't like somebody told me to do it like I wanted to do it so the work uh, that I found uh, my first job ever was at Dunkin Donuts uh, I'll tell you a quick story because I'm still in touch with the owner of that store. And uh, yeah, I'm getting emotional just because without the job, Steve, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. So it still comes back to me. So Leah, if you're listening, thank you again for giving me that minimum wage job. I basically went to a Dunkin' Donut and there was a wanted, uh, you know, wanted sign, like a job opening so I go in I fill the form and uh, I go back home and I wait for that phone call and I never get the phone call so three weeks later I walk into the store to the same lady and I said lady I don't understand the help wanted sign is still here I know I filled the form why 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 didn't you call me she says well I remember you and I didn't want to offend you you're probably from Israel right I said yes she said like I I didn't want to give you like $5.25. I said, like, why don't you give me this job and let me decide if I want it or not? So she says, fine, you have the job. I said, great, I'll see you tomorrow at 5 a.m. And I'm like, mm. well, that so was the Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, it's time to make the donuts, right? <laughs> <laughs> so my first job in the U.S. was to drive in a van at 5 a.m. in the morning to deliver donuts to satellite locations. So not to that store, but to gas stations and all kinds of places. And I tell you, that was the first job I had. After that, I was teaching at a Hebrew school. So again, just two hours here, four hours there. So it wasn't a lot of money, but I could do that. I knew Hebrew. I then uh, worked at a uh, lighting factory. And on top of that, had my first business, which is um, if you ever bought a computer that had like a Velcro thing over the cable to organize it. I invented that when I was 18 years old. So I had three jobs for other people and my own job as an entrepreneur while I was going to college. I hope you're still making money off those because I have like 10 of them. Yeah, that that was <laughs> my first, first startup. I learned a lot about margins from that one, uh, but I sold it. It's no longer in my possession, but uh, those were the four things I was doing for four years as I was going to uh, college. And so the, so the, the, the most curious one there's Dunkin' Donuts. And so, so they gave you that job and then you know, that individual you still talk to today? Not only talk to, I was then promoted to just be a clerk in the store and a store manager. And 
you know, uh, they could use my, my head to do other things. I wasn't so good as washing the dishes or washing the, the trays, I'll tell you that much. But I used to do my homework and be at the store for the most part. But the, 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 uh, the Geller family who gave me this first job, I'm still in touch with them. I go on vacations with them. I had uh, Thanksgiving with them last year. Uh, I couldn't find better people that I can uh, thank to help me. And my aunt and uncle, of course, Freddie and Eleanor, who I lived with when I just landed, but I insisted I cannot live with you. That will not be making it on my own. So I said, thank you. And then ended up uh, paying rent and going to live someplace else. That's fantastic. Well, when you were at, when you were at Montclair State University, um, you know, I read you had a professor that wrote six simple words on a whiteboard. It said, find a need and fill it. Correct. And what impact did that have on you? I still think about those six words every time I go to work, every time I start a business, I ask, I ask myself, what does the world need and how can we fill that need? And it could be in anything. Like if you think about social media, if you think about uh, electric cars, if you think about going to the moon, right? These are needs that somebody says, oh, I really want to do that or I really want this in my life. And as an entrepreneur, if you start from that sentence backward, you will find more success than if you will invent a need or you think that somebody wants something. Many times if you watch shows like Shark Tank, you see an entrepreneur who comes in and developed something. And it could be that they needed it for themselves. But when you ask them about the TAM, the total available market, or have they sold? And it's, oh, yeah, we were before selling it. It's almost like saying you are not sure yet that there is a need. And the inverse is also true, Steve. If you come in and you say, I have $4 million in sales of anything, you know that there is a need because people are trading the value of dollars and you know the product or the service. So if you take that sentence, find a need and fill it, uh, you will have much greater success in whatever it is you do because you'll start from where the source is and not from where you think the market ought to be. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, I'm a partner in a, in a VC firm as well, and, and we invest in lots of companies, and we're always looking for someone that has proven efficacy in some way of something. And it doesn't matter if the product's complete yet or if it's been in the market a long time, it's just some, some manner by which they can prove that the desire's there. Um, but you know, you, you mentioned these six words and you know, you know, find a need and fill it. Was that the first time that you had heard those six words? It's uh, the first time I saw them written down, silence after and an instructor or a college professor asking, what do you think this means? And it was the very first time I reflected upon it and really started to understand uh, what it means. It was my marketing professor, amazing lady. And at the end of that silence, she says, this is where it begins and this is where it ends. Like everything else I'm about to teach you in the next three months are details. Find a need and fill it. In our conversation so far, you you mentioned you mentioned a name twice, um, someone named Frank, and um, you eventually you know met this gentleman who's our mutual friend, and this is how you and I met, is Frank Abagnale. And and for those listening that don't know who Frank Abagnale is, you uh, go on Netflix or or um, you know Amazon Prime or so, or whatever your your favorite streaming service is, and look up the movie Catch Me If You Can, and and that's about Frank's early life, really from about ages sixteen to call it twenty one. Um, 
But I've also interviewed Frank as part of the same podcast series. And we had a, a really great discussion as well. But tell me about how working with Frank has impacted you and also how that led to this focus on this passwordless future, because I'd love to dig into that and what your company, TrueSone, is accomplishing as well. Um, I'll start by how I met Frank. It is uh, the question I get the most. Like, how did you get to meet him? How do you get to work with him? I met him on a plane. I've all really probably boarding uh, the plane. It was great. So you probably were leaving uh, South Carolina or somewhere. I was I was flying. I was flying from Charleston to uh, Washington D.C. And when I landed, I had an email from Frank, and it said, "Let's grab dinner." (laughs) That is amazing. Yeah. Um, What can I say about Frank that no one ever said? Um, He is one of the best people I've ever met in my life. And for those of you who are listening, who believe in uh, the thing from Les Mis where the cop says, if you were once a thief, you're always a thief. Let me tell you, uh, there is exceptions to every rule. And if there is an exception, his name is Frank Abagnale. I would agree. Uh, I've met a lot of people, Steve, on my journey. I'm now 29 years in the United States who said, I'll help you. I'll call you. Let's do, let's do lunch. Like all these things that people say, but they really never mean. Frank told me while I was still an executive, if you leave your job, I'll help you. And of course, you know, I go back home and I talk to my wife and I have this six month old baby. I said, like, uh, you know, that's what he said. She said, yeah, everybody says that, but that doesn't mean anything. With Frank Abagnale, it means everything. Because since that moment, uh, not only did he help me nine years in my last company, 41st Parameter, until it was acquired, uh, when I started Trusona, he said the same thing. Let me help you. And we've been on this journey now for five years. And when Frank Abignell helps, it is in every way that word is meant to be said. It's by being a mentor, helping uh, with uh, negotiations, testing the technology, being there when you're down, being there when you're up, being with you on a plane, going on TV with you. It's just he is such a good person, a good friend, a good supporter that Words just cannot describe it. What I'm very proud of, and I'll go back to how we met in a second, is that our relationship has not only been professional, because that's how it began, it is now also personal. And that getting to know him and his family and his values are such a big uh, piece of me learning about human beings and what they can become anybody who's done something wrong in their life and God help us, we've all done something wrong, can choose to change. It's a choice. And Frank made a choice and he's stuck with it now for over 40 years. If you want to keep telling Frank what he did when he was 16, it's like telling uh, the the guy who just became president that one day he was uh, not doing his homework when he was 13, right? It, it, It has no bearing on that. Tell me what he's doing now. Tell me what his life is all about. And actions speak louder than words. So Frank, to me, is the most amazing salvation story or redemption story I've ever seen in real life. Uh, And I'll pause here so you can ask the next question. But I do want to go back to how we met, because that's a pretty cool thing. And we'll tell you more about Frank Frank than anything else. Yeah, I mean, listen, I I think I, I would be happy for you to continue. I mean, because even in the conversation Frank and I had and you know, and like I said, I, I met him in a unique way, boarding a plane, which was always has been humorous to me because of, if you've watched the movie, obviously, like, you know, he, <laughs> he impersonates a pilot and, and, yeah. and did that in real life. 
as well when he was young. Um, and, and the fascinating part is, is, is when it was, he was so young. When I was 16, I, I've looked at a picture of Frank when he was 16. He looked about 31. I, I looked eight when I was 16 years old. <laughs> you know, And um, so I don't think that hurt him. You know, it certainly helped. But he's also, you know, it, he's like you said, he's such a man of high integrity. And, and so is just a, his family in general. I mean, I've been fortunate because we're in the, live in the same neighborhood to meet his wife, Kelly, and spend time with her and his kids and his grandkids. And the same with my family and, and my kids, you know, love, you know, Mr. and Mrs. A, you know, <laughs> as much as anybody. And yeah. so it's so there's just a lot of integrity there and a lot to learn, especially his, you know, take fraud out of it. Just his yes. lessons on what I've learned so much from him is is um, just more about parenthood and being a father. Yes, um, being a but, good but human. Absolutely. So so go back to, to when you met and then and then bring us up to speed on Trusona from there. So um, <clears throat> if you ever Google, there's an article about me getting a meeting with anybody you want. And the center point of it is this story, Steve, of how do you get to speak to Frank Abagnale? Because it's very difficult to get to somebody like him. In my uh, job at the credit card company, one day I uh, was added the responsibility of uh, doing fraud management for counterfeit cards, not just for mail order, telephone order, internet, what I really know well, but I got this extra responsibility. And to be honest with you, I didn't know the first thing about counterfeiting cards. So there is no book to go read. There's no university course to take, you know, every single person uh, appear that I talked to say, Oh, the, the best person to talk to about this is Frank Abagnale. He's like the best at this as like knowing how to do these things. So I called the Abagnale office I didn't know uh, who was picking up the phone, a nice lady. And she says, yeah, Frank is not available. He doesn't take any new clients. Thank you very much. A week later, I call again. Hi, this is me again. You don't understand. Everybody I talked to said I need to talk to him and I have nobody else to teach me. So can I please, please, please speak with him? Steve, I'm ashamed or maybe not ashamed to tell you that this went on for four months. <laughs> no, Every you know, week, I, I, I would I, call. I, I have a good friend and someone I've invested in this company um, that he that he told me no is only good for 24 hours. So there so, you go. You live that one. Every week I would call. I, I felt bad. Trust me. I don't want to be a pest, but I, I have one shot. And especially for immigrants who come to the U.S., there are no excuses. So I just kept asking, kept begging, said, I really need this. Help me out. And then, you know, we started developing a relationship, me and this lovely lady. She was like, well, why should he meet you? I said, like, listen, whatever he teaches me, I can then use here at the credit card company and we will block bad guys from us. Like, I, I, try, I try to give a reason that it's not really for me. It's really for the benefit of the world. Long story short, four months later, I get the following phone call. Yes, this is the Abignell office. Uh, he will be in San Antonio speaking for Discover Card, which was a competitor, by the way. Uh, and he has a hole in his schedule between getting off stage and going to his uh, plane. So do you want a 20 minute ride in his car from the hotel to the airport? Because that's when he can meet you. Yes, and I will I take said, that immediately. Yes, I'm <laughs> taking that meeting. So I go back home, I tell my wife, honey, we're going with our little baby to San Antonio. What do we have there? I said, like, remember that guy I'm trying to meet with? Oh, yeah. I said, yeah, I have a meeting. A meeting? Yeah, it's just a ride 20 minutes from there. So she just gave me the look like, okay, I'm not going to ask. So uh, Frank goes off stage. Our eyes meet. And he gives me this look that I'll never forget. Like, so you're the guy who keeps calling. 
I'm like, yep. And I'm smiling and very <laughs> energized to follow him. A million people. I didn't realize this scene will be everywhere we go in the world. Many people surround him. Sir, I want to take a picture. I want to shake your hand. I want to sign my book. Like, this is Frank Abagnale's life. It's like a rock star. And you just walk with him. Then we enter the limo. This is where our, my story will end, Steve, because we vowed never to speak about the ride and what was said there. Uh, we were even offered money once to tell what happened there. And it's just between Frank and I. But when I left that uh, limo, and after he said the words to me, if you would leave your day job, we will take your inventions of fraud detection to the world. It changed my life. That simple. So uh, we've done the fraud detection company, 41st Parameter, together. And now him and I are on a journey to basically remove the last thing that would help us as a society move the internet to the next gen. And if you'd ask, what is the problem? The problem is passwords. People like uh, Michael Chertoff, who ran a Department of Homeland, on his way out would say 81% of what I see happen, all these breaches, all these events, when you distill them down to the most common denominator, it is password. Why? Because people give away their password, they use the same one everywhere, phishing site, malware, all these things really, Steve, are just after one thing. If I can get your password, I really got you. I got your identity. I got everything I need to become you. So until our daily lives do not remove passwords from all of these login events, I don't think we will see a big drop in the fraud we talked about early on and in the crime that is being committed. And so Trusona, I mean, you know, you guys have grown significantly and you guys are a big company now, right? So what, what specifically does Trusona do for a business or for the average individual? So we have solutions for employees. So think about logging into Windows, logging into your single sign-on, logging into a VPN without a password. And we also have solution for consumers not directly, but if you're a bank, if you're a healthcare company, we can provide you our technology to put on your website and in your app so your consumers do not need to use passwords. Unfortunately, we cannot just give an app to people and they'll go be passwordless because the websites need to adopt it as well. So otherwise, we probably will be done, Steve, because everybody I meet on an airplane, at least when we used to fly and I tell them what I do, they want to hug me. They say, oh, my God, you're going to get rid of passwords. I love you, man. I hate passwords. And I say, yeah, I hate passwords, too. But we need as a society to realize it's bad for us. and We need to move on. And I also think it will give us a better user experience. But Trusona is in the business of providing the tools and the services to get rid of passwords for any company that wants to do it for their employees and or customers. That's great. And do you, do you believe that this will ultimately lead to ridding the world of anything else? You know, for example, let's say other things that maybe people hate, you know, social security numbers, bank account numbers, voting in person or by mail. I mean, does it lead us down that path as well? I think the first step is to get confidence in the system and see how it works and experience that silence, the silence of not hearing every day that something crashed. And after that, I'm pretty sure the generation after us, so my kids and your kids, will take that foundation and say, well, what else can we build on top of it? And that's when you get to filling prescriptions without passwords, voting without passwords, opening bank accounts, getting a loan, 
all those things that today we need, cards and numbers, and it, it will just be a thing of the past because every one of us now has in their, their pocket a you know, little computer called a smartphone, but we're not operating as if we do. So once we start leveraging all that compute power to fight back the bad guys, we will have a whole new way of living that will allow us to do things. And the word password will be a thing that you think about just like a fax machine. Oh yeah, that thing we used to have or like a beeper, right? You know what it is, but eh, no one's using it anymore. That is my aim. And that's why Frank and I are on this journey to get rid of passwords. And so, and, and so, you know, it, it, what it does, so, so we say we get rid of passwords, it keeps the bad guys out, but on the opposite, does it open access to so many more things for people as well? I mean, where it's more of an open access platform, you know, like there's a company that I, I've been involved in for years called Latch and it's all about, mm-hmm. you know, their lock systems that go on doors and everything and they have a, their own OS and actually they just went, you know, public via SPAC, but, but they, their whole premise wasn't to keep people out, it was to let people in properly. Yes, I love that. When you think about UX and user experience, it's the one thing that the security industry was lacking. Historically, Steve, when you said, let's make something more secure, what it really meant is let's add more padlocks to the door. Everybody knows how to do that. But when you make it so difficult, let me give you an example. Say that tomorrow I told you, Steve, you need to use 20 character passwords every time now. You're not going to remember that. So what are you going to do? Write it down on a little piece of paper. Is that more secure? Or by the mere fact that I've added a bigger padlock to the door, which I think is more secure, I forced you because of usability to do something that is the complete opposite of what I want. So if it's not going to be easy to use or usable, it's not going to make you more secure. It's simple as that. So what we are saying is if we developed and by removing passwords, you are getting to a plane that is easier to authenticate with and more secure. So if you can push people there, I do think then you can have the right to reverse things and say, it's not about the bad guy, it's about letting the good guys in. And that will open, as you say, a whole new way of, I can now get a loan without filling out five different pages of applications because my identity is for sure who it is and I don't need to prove, you know, a bill and a birth certificate. And so all those things that are from, you know, the 20th century, that's what I'm saying. If we can make this one step forward, everything will be about how easy it is to do something and not how the, the process with its security is causing us to go, oh my God, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And, and look, getting a loan and filling out, I wish it was five pages. I just went through the process and it must have been at least 50. It's horrendous. But um, so Frank and I have discussed this topic many times. And, and you're familiar with, with my company, Levelwing. You know, we're an ad agency that builds brands and, and also help our clients spend their ad dollars you know, effectively and efficiently. In our industry, in our industry, there, there are a lot of gray areas of of work and and we're you know i'll give you an example you know a lot of agencies are not forthcoming on or clear with their clients about how their money is being spent or you know worse marking those dollars and those costs up significantly through programmatic or trading desk type tools Mm -hmm. because they have full they have you know um they have full access to them you know we've chosen leveling to to be completely free of those markups rebates whatever word du jour that you would like to use to make it sound friendly um but you know, with the purpose of providing all of our client partners with full access to these financial tools, data, and so on, we're fully open access. We're making it easy for everyone, so that 
so that ultimately we can be the most transparent and trusted agency in the industry, which is, which is an ultimate goal for us. Um, you know, and it's also a unique place to be, but it's also honest and truthful and healthy for relationship building. When talking with Frank, you know, he, he of course will sum this up and say, look, those that don't do this are treading a fine line of the, of the law and even committing fraud, whether it's intentional or not. Of course. Um, so what's your, what's your point of view on transparency or lack thereof in, in the field in which you've chosen to build your career? I'm actually going to go to your field real quick. Uh, when I said I had four jobs, it's four jobs at any given time. So sometimes I would give one off, but get another one. So towards the end of my college, uh, I was working at a publisher uh, for a trade magazine. And I've learned something that I don't think the average person knows, which is if you take an ad in the paper and it's contained within a quarter of an inch from the edge of the magazine, it costs X. But if you want your ad to go all the way to the edge of the paper, also called the bleed ad, I'm sure Steve, you've heard that. Of course. All of a sudden there's a 15% upcharge. And if you don't really think about it, you're like, hmm, I guess it just costs more to do. I still teach today at Trisona, our team, the origin of that 15%, which goes all the way back to Gutenberg and having a frame that holds down the paper. So you need to have that margin. But we both know that with today's printing and digital stuff, that thing does not even exist, but everybody kept the 15% markup. I think that kind of lack of transparency is not helping a business because the moment I learned that, I just felt betrayed. I felt that you could have done this better and it wouldn't cost you anything, but you kept something like that kind of buried. It's the thing no one wants to talk about. I'll give you one example from Walmart and Amazon that I really think they're doing really well. They reduce prices without you asking for it. And in fact, if you look at the uh, original papers where Amazon uh, started as a company, they said, if we can make something cheaper, we will. You don't see that in normal businesses. Now, of course, it gives you an advantage if you're fighting on price. We all know that. But a company that doesn't have full transparency with its customers is really walking a fine line. Because the minute, you know, in a world like uh, with uh, social media, everybody can tweet, everybody can tell a friend, and in two seconds, the whole world know, right? We now live in a different set of risks than 50 years ago. Right, 50 years ago, you could have done something really, really bad, but only people in your town would ever know about this. Right now, something bad happens. You upload a video, you send one tweet, and like wildfires all over the world in 24 hours. So think about your business processes. And if you're doing something that you're not proud of, you wouldn't be proud to tell your kids at the dinner table, stop it. And you'll see how you will make the money that you used to make a different way. You might gain more customers because they'll say, you know what, you're an honest business I want to stick with. All of a sudden, that will have some value. Transparency in this day and age is a must. It's not something that is an option, in my opinion. Yeah, and, uh, and so I'm, I couldn't more agree with you. And, and unfortunately, it's an overused term and people hide behind it in, in a lot of instances. And particularly if they can be you know, complicated. And if there's anything the internet industry by and large has done is it's made simple things extremely complex for people to understand, right? But you just mentioned, uh, you said a phrase, the thing that no one wants to talk about. And in, and in my industry, in, in media and marketing, advertising, 
that is something no one wants to talk about. In fact, last year I was doing an interview with, um, with one of the big industry trades and, and I won't mention which one. And, and the reporter said, and it was with Frank, actually, we were talking about transparency because we had just put out a video, Frank and I talking about this. Um, and so he was interviewing us and, and he said, you know, Steve, why? He said, I, you know, I, I, I watched the video, we're doing the interview with you today. I called around to some other big agencies and, and started to ask about it. No one would talk to me about this. He said, why do you think no one wants to talk about it? And I was like, well, you know, I won't mention his name. I said, well, listen, if think about the industry that you're in, they're marketers, advertisers, creatives, telling stories. We're all very good at telling stories. Candy bars aren't healthy for you, but the ads will tell you that they are, you know, they'll make you feel better. They'll give you more time in your day. They'll make you be a better person, whatever. And it's not true, but it makes you maybe feel that way. So I said, first of all, think about the people that you're speaking with. So you should have a, like a healthy dose of consideration for, is this truthful or why wouldn't you want to talk to me about this? Is there something on your line that you, you can't mention or don't want to mention? And so it's just a really interesting topic. And anyway, so short, in short, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you know, let's come back to, to fraud um, a bit. You know, what's the most common way that a, that a person can get, you know, scammed and, and, and maybe even a business? And, and what's perhaps an uncommon way, one that I would not immediately be aware of to consider? I think the most common way is the way you don't suspect. Uh, and that's why fraud is many times underreported. So think about walking into a doctor's office and filling out the form. What are they asking you? Name, address, maybe driver license, social security number. When you hand that form to the doctor, they read it. Their staff is reading it. What happens to this form when you leave, Steve? Do you know? No clue. It's a good question. Right. So we only need one rogue employee at the doctor's office to start making copies. We only need them to toss it to the garbage and you have a dumpster diver who gets it there. So that is the most common. I'm not blaming doctors. I'm just saying every time you give your information and you think you're done, what is the secondary use of that information? I know what the primary was. You wanted to get uh, the doctor to see you. But what happens to it after is the big question. It will also answer your question, what's the most unexpected way? And I'll tell you, copy machines. Many people don't realize that every time you take a copy in today's day and age, it is saved on a hard disk inside the copier. And if you're a mortgage company, if you're a doctor's office, if you're a bank, when you get your copiers replaced, how many of you have went into settings to say, erase the hard drive before I'm giving it to the dumpster? Well, it's unfair question because many of us don't even know there is a hard drive there and everything you've ever taken is scanned. So if I'm a crook, Steve, all I need to do is to go to dump sites or to auctions of old printers and old copiers and you've just given me a treasure trove already scanned in digital format. It's as if you've done the work for me. And I'm sorry for anybody who's hearing this now for the first time who has the OS moment. But unfortunately, that's how our data gets traveled around. And we don't even think about it. Um, you know, one, one last thing I'll ask you, you know, in our time together, and, and you made a little nod to this a bit. And, and I guess you're a fan of The Simpsons, which I didn't know until recent. Um, 
you wrote two scripts for the Simpsons once and sent to Gracie films, like what happened and what encouraged you to do that? Yes. So I want you to know one of the things I loved in 1991 when I landed in the U S and I told my family Simpsons is one of the greatest shows ever. Now remember that up until the Simpsons shows were coming and going and very few of them had a long lasting, but something about the Simpsons, uh, I could feel is not a show that would end anytime soon just because it could lend itself to so many different situations. And here we are, 600 episodes later. It's the longest running show ever, uh, especially in the cartoon world. Um, I have a desire to put myself into that world and I'm still working on it. I'm not going to lie to you. I, well, I wrote the two scripts and both of them uh, were rejected just because I wasn't yet a, a, an official writer and I wasn't part of the guild and all those things. Uh, until today, through my work with Montclair State University, who's connected to one of the writers, I'm trying because I have one shot at this and uh, I love the show and I think it can... Uh, can do a lot of good things in our lives so yes i still have that dream and i will keep pursuing it until uh i stop well when you when you get there you'll have to let us all know and then we can all um let out a collective oh <laughs> you know like, no. No. um well listen ori you know I'll, I'll i'll put the i'll make the floor yours now i mean any last words anything people should know about ori eisen trusona be on the lookout for that maybe i didn't ask you and should have uh, there's one thing you need to know that uh, I want to thank you, Steve, for doing what you're doing. I think uh, the idea of this uh, podcast to the naked eye seems like two business guys talking to each other, but there is a hidden message. There's something woven through every single question. Listen to this podcast again, and uh, I hope it uh, brings you something good in your life. That's the parting words I have. I, I, I like that. And there is one. So, well, Ori, look, man, it's such a pleasure to talk with you. And, and it always has been, you know, in the past, I'm, I'm so grateful for your advice um, and just your, your general way of being in the world. Um, it, yeah, I can feel it, you know, and, and I'm sure lots, well, I'm sure many others have as well. And, um, and obviously, you know, meeting through Frank, you know, he, he always sang your praises actually for probably the better part of a year before we spoke. Thank you. I appreciate the kind words very much. Absolutely. Well, thank you for your time, Ori. So that was a true life coming to America story. Ori Eisen arriving in the United States and building a business he sold for over 300 million. The most important takeaway for me had to be when Ori was briefly emotional about the owners of the Dunkin' Donut shop that gave him his first job in America. It showed how big and humble his heart is, and it tied nicely into how he operates his businesses today. I also really enjoyed his thoughts on the thing that no one wants to talk about related to transparency and why people do the things that they do. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you appreciated it. Please share Parker on Tap with others, and we'd love it if you could take a moment to rate the podcast as well. Feel free to reach out at parkerontap.com. Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. 
The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.